Welcome, welcome back, <laughs> guys. Um, this is my first time doing a very long YouTube video. I think the total length of this whole training will probably be between five to seven hours. So <laughs> I'm experiencing this. So as I'm recording, because I'm recording it locally um, on my computer, so I keep running out of storage space. So what I had to do, I just realized it was, I just had to upgrade my Zoom account to be able to get um, cloud storage. So now uh, with this third video, because this is the third time uh, I'm getting disconnected because um, it just stops recording. So when it stops recording, then I have to go back and start. So I'm sorry, these are all growing things. <laughs> First time doing a long video, so I'm learning from it. So hopefully there's no more interruption to this um, in, in this video and we can just go and finish this. So. Uh, yeah, this is very long, guys. This is my first time doing such a long video. I think my longest YouTube video has been maybe one hour. Um, I think so far we're up to about three hours and we have about two to three more hours to go. So just to let you know, this is a marathon. I'm not really a coffee person, but uh, I have my morning joe because it's it's early in the morning on my end year. Um, so I have coffee and uh, what do I have here? Um, to just tell you, I'm not a morning person. So I have a hazelnut um, decaf. So having some coffee to just keep me alert a little bit. So, all right, so let's go. So. For you guys, I'm sorry. Um, most people will have a professionally edited video and all of that stuff. I mean, I just, you know, it's, it's the first one. So we put something out, maybe the second, third video will have better lighting. As you notice, my, my background is not that great. For those of you watching on Zoom, for, for those of you listening to this on, on the podcast, that's one of the reasons I like podcasts. I'm a professional podcaster. I've been doing podcasts slightly over a year now. So that's why I like podcasts. You don't have to worry about your lighting. You don't have to worry about your background. You don't have to worry about any of those things. You just record. Uh, so, so, that's, um, so that's great, guys. So I'm learning the hard way, but that's life, right? You, you're learning every time. So. I just learned something new. So we're going to have three different videos. Hopefully uh, nothing more than three videos for this one. So go ahead and finish because this is still part one. But I was hoping part one would just be one long video, five to seven hours. But because I keep running out of, uh, in a, no, I keep running out of storage space on my computer and um, internet problems. That's why we keep breaking up the video. So, all right, let's get straight into it. I'll share my screen. And here, let's go. Uh -uh. All right, let's go here back to my. So, okay, so we're, we're on types of insurers. I actually like hazelnuts. I think 
Yeah, I think hazelnut would be my my favorite. Well, no, not favorite. It's, it's going to be a tie between hazelnut and cappuccino. Uh, those are my two favorite <laughs> flavors um, of, of coffee. Is that how you call it? Flavor? I don't even know. I'm, I'm not really a coffee drinker, so forgive me. But let me take a little. Um, or sip here. I, I really need this. We are on a marathon, guys. Okay. So we're on, um, I think we stopped on Mutual, right? Okay. So Mutual, Mutual insurance companies are owned by the policyholders and it's called participating. Why? Because the policyholders participate in the dividends. What are dividends? Dividends, um, or just a share of the company's profits that they gave back. Um, so in this case, if it's shareholders, they gave back a certain portion of um, that profits. If it's um, policy orders, they gave a certain um, portion of those profits back to policy orders. Now, what you got to keep in mind is policy orders, the, the dividends that policy orders receive are not taxable, it's tax-free. Why? Because dividends that policyholders receive from a mutual company are considered return of premium. So that is why it's not taxed because you've already paid tax on that premium before you paid it, uh, before you pay the premium, you've already paid tax on it, right? Because the, your premium is actually after-tax money. So when the insurance company makes a lot of money, uh, they may make, let's say, $100 million in profit. And they say, you know, we, we made $100 million in, in profit, and maybe we, uh, we have more than enough money to cover all of our operating expenses. Um, and we have all this extra money, and we probably don't need all of the premiums that we that we collected in the last three months, so we're going to return some of uh, those premiums to our policyholders uh, in the form of policy dividends. So what you have to know is that for stock companies, policy uh, policy dividends, uh, no dividends are called policy dividends, and for stock companies, dividends are called stock dividends. All right. Now, um, dividends, as I said, they are considered return of premiums, um, and the dividends are not guaranteed. So on the exam, you may get a question, maybe reworded and saying, you know, uh, you know, dividends are guaranteed or not. You just know, because um, dividends, getting dividend payment just depends on the company's um, financial success. So if the company makes a lot of money, then it returns some of that in the form of dividends. If they don't make money, if the company loses money, you don't get dividends, all right? So let's, let's clear that out. Number three, yeah, let's, let's just go down. Even though for you guys in Washington, DC, this may not be on your exam, but it's still just good to know just in case because the exam content I share with you 
that was last updated November 2nd, 2020. So they usually update the exam content once every year. So I'm assuming there should be another one that was either updated, um, you know, that was released either November last month, which was last month or sometime this month. So if you're taking your exam this month or next month, there's a possibility that it may be uh, on there because I know most state insurance exams have this on their outline, like uh, Lawyers of London, uh, Fraternal Benefit Society, but I don't know why DC doesn't have that. So let's just go ahead and cover it. So for reciprocal insurance companies, what is a reciprocal insurance company? A reciprocal insurance company is a group owned company with which sharing amongst their members, right? So it can be unincorporated, it's formed by individuals, firms, or corporations. Now, one of the distinguishing uh, features of a reciprocal insurance company is that it needs something called an attorney in fact. So they need a lawyer. And they are not required to be licensed. So mutual insurance companies are required to be licensed. Stock insurance companies are required to be licensed, but reciprocal insurance companies are not required to be licensed. And their members are core subscribers. For mutual insurance companies, their members are core policyholders. For reciprocal insurance companies, their members are core subscribers. Now, number four, we have Lawyers of London. Now, Lawyers of London technically is not an insurance company, but it's still categorized under insurance companies. Lawyers of London, we think Lawyers of London think underwriters, okay? So Lawyers of London is not an insurance company, but it consists of a group of underwriters that they come together and insure a specific risk. For example, some of these athletes, um, they may insure their arm. You know, maybe a, maybe a, a basketball player may insure their arm, or maybe a, 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 an NFL quarterback may insure their um arm right for maybe 50 million dollars so the companies that will usually do that will be lawyers of london because they insure specific risk but they're just a group of underwriters so the members are liable for each risk they insure right and it also just like a reciprocal insurance company they also need an attorney in fact or a proprietor so the distinguishing factor or feature of a Reciprocal insurance company is what um, they don't have to be licensed and their members are core subscribers. Um, for Lawyers of London, they, are, they consist of underwriters. So anytime you hear Lawyers of London think underwriter, the second thing is they insure specific risks, specific types of risks. Now, the fifth type of insurance company we have is the Fraternal Benefit Society. So we think fraternal, what does the, the word fraternal um, reveal? So we think fraternal, think social, think charity. You know, like for example, for some of you who are, um, who are college graduates, you are in a fraternity, right? Uh, you know, Alpha, Alpha, Beta, Kappa, 
um, Delta, whatever, <laughs> all those Greek names, right? But everybody was in a fraternity, like a brotherhood, you know? Um, so, so when you think about fraternity, think about social organizations. So they can be social organizations and they're usually engaged in some type of charity or benevolent activities. Now, they can be organized by faith. So you may have these sisters um, of charity. It's a Catholic um, you know, fraternal organization. Or you may have the um, large, I don't know, you know whatever, you, uh, you may have a large. Um, or you may have um, a professional um, organization. So, but just think that fraternal benefit, again, they're social and they're, um, no, they're mostly charity um, organizations. Most of the time, they're also nonprofits. So it's very rare. I, I've never heard of a fraternal benefit society that is for, you know, that is for profit. So we see non-for-profit, that's your um, clue that is probably a fraternal. So we see non-for-profit and you see uh, it's organized by a specific faith where it's a social organization, non-for-profit, they know fraternal benefit society. The members who own fraternal um, you know, life insurance, you know, um, the members who own life insurance for fraternal uh, benefit societies, they're called certificate holders. So again, in um, reciprocal insurance, members are called subscribers. For mutual insurance, members are called policy holders. For fraternal benefit society, members are called certificate holders. So you got to know these little um, distinguishing features of each of these. For fraternal benefit society, members are also called certificates and they also have open contracts. So for exam purposes, and that's why I say, yeah, I've been to academy. We don't waste your time trying to study a 500 because as, as I said, I promise I won't call <laughs> our competitor's name, but it's one of the largest exam prep you know, the companies out there. They do everything. They do securities license prep. They do, uh, you know, they do property and casualty. They do real estate. They do everything, right? So their, their book, their life and health insurance book, I saw it. 540 pages, but that was just the general portion. That was excluding the state law supplement. When you included the state law supplement, it came to 580 pages. Who, in our very busy world today, where everybody is always on the go, 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 who has time to study <laughs> and remember 580 pages? That is why Menzo Academy is uh, uh, Menzo Pass is here to say, you know what, we know you you lead busy lives. Some of you are full-time parents, working full-time, going to school full-time, or you're in, you know, or you're working two jobs. You don't have time to study a 580-page book, exam prep. And even if you study it, you will remember, <laughs> you will remember 40, uh, you no, know, 40% of that. Right, so we believe it's waste of your time. You are busy. Let's follow 
our strategy, follow our strategy, and you can cut your exam time by even your, your exam study time by more than 75%. Instead of taking weeks and weeks, maybe months to study, you can study. And depending on how many hours you put in, you could have your, you know, you could be ready to take your exam in three or four days, you know, with our strategy and pass. All right. So for the different types of insurance, trust me, what you see here, again, for those of you on YouTube, for those on the podcast, just listen. But what you see here is all you need to know. Okay, it's all you need to know about these different, you know, you just need to know these key points because what you got to know, the exam, they don't expect you to be an expert. They don't, they're not going to go and, you know, ask you minute details like tricky. No, they're going to ask you things that anyone who studied the exam, you know, um, should be able to pass, right? And I told you their test questions, they will test, you know, they're going to pre-test your questions before bringing it on the actual exam. And about 60 to 70% of people have to pass those questions before they can bring them. So when you have a question on the exam, that means that at least 60% of people have passed that question. So it won't be tricky question, very difficult question that if you study, you're not gonna know, right? So there are certain things you need to go into details uh, and, and certain topics you don't. For the list of insurers, trust me, these are just the highlights. This is all. This is uh, these are all you need to know. All right. So let's come here to risk retention group. What is a risk retention group? Well, it's a group with risk sharing by members. The members again are policyholders. Now, the key thing you got to know is risk retention group is a form of mutual insurance company. That's why their members are called policyholders or, or policy owners. So it's a type of mutual insurance company. All right. So um, is maybe I'll give you an example. For example, you have car, right? So you have just cars in general. Then you have different types of of cars, you have different types of vehicles. You have your SUVs, you have your sedans. Uh, you know, you have you have your pickup trucks, but those are all cars, right? So, thing about rigs with that uh, retention group, maybe if mutual insurance company was cars, think about rigs retention group as being maybe your SUVs, but it is still a car. It still has four tires and all of that stuff. So that's risk retention group. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a type of mutual insurance company. That is why their members are called policyholders or policy owners. Now, for risk retention group, they have to be licensed in at least one state. They have to be licensed in at least one state. That is what um, you know, makes them different, sets them apart from fraternal benefit society, uh, it sets them apart from laws of London, okay? For risk retention group, they have to be licensed in at least one state. They also have to cover homogeneous or similar group uh, that are exposed to the same risks. So for example, risk retention group, they may cover, say, only lawyers. So, okay, you know, we're going to provide insurance coverage for all lawyers. That's a risk retention group. Or we may um, provide 
uh, insurance coverage for all uh, Uber drivers. So, so they cover the similar groups, okay, that share the same risks. Other thing is each member has ownership interest in that group. Each member in a risk retention group has an ownership stake in that. And that's why I say, remember I told you risk retention group is a form of mutual insurance company because each subscriber, each member in a mutual insurance company is a part owner, you know, they're, uh, they're entitled to dividends, they can vote on the board of directors and all of that stuff. So that's why I said, remember, risk retention group is a type of mutual insurance company. Now, only they only provide liability insurance to their members. Okay, so only to their members. They cover similar liability exposures. For example, theme parks, water parks, lawyers, all of that. The third type of insurer, which is that insurance company per se, but it, it could be a company is self-insurance. That means you're just insuring yourself. So instead of me going to get an insurance company to say, cover my car in the case of an accident, you know what, I'm going to insure myself. So I'm going to put aside money every month in my bank account or wherever uh, that will be, that I will be able to use just in case I'm involved in an accident and my car is completely total then I can take that money and be uh, able to get a new vehicle or, or, or repair my vehicle. It's the same thing. Some companies are also self-insured. Some companies do not get insurance, uh, especially large companies. They insure themselves. Okay, we'll put a way setting um, percentage of companies uh, revenue you know, to cover um, anything that may come, any, you know, any loss. That is very rare, but some companies do that. So those are the different types of insurance company. Again, let me know uh, different types of insurers. Number one, stock insurers. Number two, mutual insurers. Number three, reciprocal insurers. Number four, lawyers of London. Number five, fraternal benefit society. Number six, risk retention group. And number seven, self-insurers. All right, moving forward, number 70. We got about 21 more questions to go. Number seven, let me get a sip of my hazelnut decaf Starbucks coffee. Oh my God, I'm, 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 I'm enjoying this hazelnut coffee. Oh, I should have ordered two cups, by the way. All right, so it says uh, number 70, commissions can be shared or split by producers on which of the following grounds, okay? A, it says written agreement between the producers. B, says it is illegal under any circumstance for producers to share commission. C, says only if the insurer is aware of it and agrees to it in writing. D says both parties are properly licensed for that specific line of insurance. So what is the correct answer? Now, what you got to know, you know, again, all of you hopefully will become insurance agents, licensed insurance agents soon. So what we do in insurance um, industry is we, not the majority, but I'll say about 20% of the time we, we split 
commission with fellow agents. So for example, I may have an, an agent refer me a client, right? And, and that person is licensed, right? But, but for, for some reason, maybe, maybe they're on vacation or maybe they're overwhelmed, they're overworked, they don't have time to help that client, they will refer that client to me, right? So I will help that client, but for them referring that client to me, I will split with them 50-50. You know, 50% of the commission, they get 50%. So, so um, splitting commissions is, um, is very common in the insurance industry. Now, in order to split commission, you have to be licensed. So for example, if I'm applying for, you know, if I'm trying to get a client to open an account for a client in the state of Maryland for life insurance, right? And my, you know, my fellow agent refers that client to me. So the client lives in Maryland. So I have to, get a Maryland license. Well, the client is licensed in Maryland. I would need to be licensed in Maryland, okay? So number one, you have to be licensed in that state the client is in. So you have to be licensed in every state that you transact insurance business in. So, the, and it's based on the client state of residence. So if the client lives in Nevada, you will need to get a Nevada license. That will be a Nevada non-resident license, assuming you don't live in Nevada to be able to sell insurance to that client, okay? But you have to be licensed in each state in order to transact, not just transact, but to even solicit insurance, you have to be licensed in that state. Now, there are a lot of agents who don't abide by that 100%, but for test purposes, you have to know that you have to be license to solicit insurance, to sell insurance, uh, or to offer insurance to anyone. For example, for me, I'm licensed in 24 states. My business partner, she's licensed in, I think, 44 states, okay? So if I want to help someone in Maryland, that person who's referring me to that client will also have to be licensed in Maryland, not just licensed, but they will have to not just license in that state, but be licensed for that particular line of authority. So for example, if, if it's a life insurance policy, that person will have to be licensed um, for, uh, for life insurance in the state of Maryland. If they're not licensed, then I cannot legally split with them. So they have to be licensed in the state for that specific line of insurance. So if it was health insurance, they have to be licensed for health insurance in, in order to split commissions. So in this case, the correct answer would be um, both will be D, both parties are properly licensed for that specific line of insurance. Let's come here to our explanation. Let's come here. So it says here, in the insurance industry, Producers must be properly licensed in the line of insurance to be able to receive commissions. Splitting commission, although uncommon, is legal amongst producers who are appointed by the same insurer and licensed to sell that specific insurance. So 
in order to split, you also have to be licensed by the same, you know, you have to be appointed by the same insurer. So for example, if I'm a state farm agent, I can only split with another licensed state farm agent in that, um, in that state. So I won't be able to split with an all state agent or you know, with a GEICO agent. I have to split with a state farm agent. All right, question number 71. The act of making false statements about the financial condition of any insurer that are intended to injure any person engaged in the business of insurance can be termed as what? A, rebidding. Again, remember we, we talked about well, all of these um, not too long ago, right? These are all different types of unfair trade practices. There are seven types of unfair trade practices. So you have to know those. Then B says defamation. C says slander. D says misrepresentation. All right, so what is the correct answer? Let's read that question again. The act of making false statements all right, about the financial condition of any insurer that are intended to injure any person engaged in the business of insurance can be termed as what? So number one, we know false statement is misrepresentation, all right? So now they have misrepresentation there. That is to throw you off. But it didn't just stop there. If, if the question just asks, um, no, the act of making false statement will be what? Misrepresentation, that's fine. But it didn't stop there. It says making false statements about the financial condition of any insurer with the intention to injure them, you know, to cause harm. It, it, it may not be physical harm, it may be financial harm, all of that, but to cause harm. In that case, that, that is defamation. So defamation is just a form of misrepresentation that is intentional and is meant to harm someone in the insurance industry, all right? So it gets a little tricky. So we know it is not rebating, because when we think rebate, think about inducement, okay? We are not offering any inducement. Slender, we think, yes, technically it's slender because, you know, slender and you're lying, you're saying malicious thing, but for insurance purposes, um, it's not considered slender, okay? Remember, this is an insurance exam, so you got to speak insurance la um, language, so it's not slender. So the correct answer is B, defamation. Let's come here, read the answer feedback. It says defamation is any false written or oral, so it can be both written or oral, statements intended to harm anyone, including producer or insurance company involved in the insurance business. Defamation is also any maliciously false information or statement about the financial condition of any company or person. Now, as I said earlier, misrepresentation is just any false statement. Now, rebidding, let's review what is rebidding. Rebidding is the practice of offering inducements to propose insurance and the, the inducement could be in the form of money. It can be um, materially significant things to the worth money, okay? So rebidding is the practice of offering inducements to propose insurers, applicants in order to make a sale. So anytime you offer something of value 
For example, in the state of Washington, D.C., anything that, that you offer a value that's worth more than $10 to get someone to um, buy insurance from you is considered rebidding. Okay, think about rebidding. When you think rebidding, remember back in the day it's where we used to have coupons? You used to have rebates. So, so, you, so you buy something and then the company will send you coupons in the mail you know, as a form of rebate. Like, okay, yes, you bought something from us. Thank you very much. Here is extra savings, right? So that is rebate. You know, in the, in the retail industry, you get rebates all the time. You know, if you buy two items, uh, you know, we, will, we will send you, you know, uh, this free. You know, we will give you a free this or free that, right? Now, that is legal in the retail industry, but in the financial industry, you cannot do that. So I cannot try to offer you to, you know, to get me, you know, to get insurance from me by saying, oh, you know what, if you get insurance, um, Michael, if you get insurance from me, uh, guess what? Uh, no, I will, no, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm going to get you uh, a gift card. Uh, no, I'm going to give you a hundred dollars gift card, or I'm give, going to give you a two hundred dollars Macy's gift card. No, that is inducement. All right. So just keep that in mind. But again, if it's ten dollars or less, it is okay uh, in the District of Columbia. Some states are different. So yeah, I can give you a five dollars, um, you know, McDonald's gift card. That's not considered rebating, right? But where you get in trouble is if it is more than $10. So not offering merchandise, educational materials or promotional materials that cost less than $10 are allowed and therefore legal, right? So I can tell the client, oh, you know what? If you get insurance from me, you know, if you, if you um, open an account with me, I can give you a brand new sneakers. You know, maybe some of the brand, you know, the latest Jordans, that costs maybe three or four hundred dollars. No, no, no. It's more than ten dollars. That is considered rebidding. It is an unfair trade practice, and that is something that could get your license suspended. And if you keep doing it, could get your license revoked. All right. Question seventy-two: Which of the following can be associated with unfair claims settlement practice? Again. Keep in mind, unfair claim settlement practice is a form of unfair trade practice. So A says, swear under oath concerning the facts of the claims by the insurer, delaying the settlement of a claim for 20 days to allow the insured to conduct an investigation, requesting the insured to submit a signed proof of loss statement after the insurer has already verbally um, um, informed the insurer. D, the insured probably received less than what is actually being offered if he or she is advised that claims um, will be paid later. So what, it says, which of the following can be associated with unfair claims settlement? When you think settlement, so anytime a client files a claim, the insurance company is obligated to 
settle that claim, pay out. Now, if they cannot settle that claim, if they cannot pay out, then by law, they have to um, offer a reason why, okay? So let's see what the, uh, the option here. So, so now there are a lot of examples they give for unfair claim settlement practice. Just use your common sense. What do you, because I mean, it's a lot of them, right? But just use common sense. What do you think would be unfair, right? The key word there is unfair, right? If you swear under oath concerning the facts of the um, claims by the insurer, is that considered unfair? No, you, you can swear under oath. Uh, you can get document notarized, um, uh, which is the same as swearing under oath. If they delay the settlement claim, uh, no, the settlement of a claim for 20 days to allow the, uh, the insurer to conduct an investigation, that's okay, 20 days, not unfair, right? Now, if it's uh, one year, like, okay, 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 that's a long time, that's unfair, all right? Requesting the insurer to submit a signed proof of loss statement after the insurer has already verbally informed it, yeah, uh, insurer, yes, you can call the insurer and say, yes, I have a claim, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but you'll still require some, some things in writing, right? So, I mean, that is not unfair. D is the correct answer. The insurer received, will probably receive less than what is actually being offered, okay? So let's, let's read that answer. Let's read that feedback here. It says, according to the unfair claim, practices, this is a violation. So if the insurer probably received less than what is actually being offered, if he or she is advised that claim, uh, no, is advised that claims goes to arbitration. So you're trying to scare the insurer, tell them, oh, if, let's just say in your contract, um, the insurance contract says, okay, um, God forbid, if, uh, no, if we were to, let's say it's a it's an accident and disability claim, right? And let's say they say, okay, if you are to become disabled, let's say you lose one of your limbs or your eyesight or stuff, we're going to pay you ninety thousand. Out of a sudden, the insurance company comes to you after you are involved in an accident and you lost. Uh, one of your one of your limbs, the insurance company comes to say, okay, you know what? Instead of ninety thousand, we're going to give you ten thousand dollars. Oh, hold up, hold up, hold up! That is unfair. My my contract clearly said ninety thousand. Why am I getting ten thousand? Oh, oh, well, guess what, uh, Michael? If you don't accept ninety thousand, guess what? We are going to arbitration and not only are we going there but guess what 99.9% of the time we always win so now you're scaring you're giving less than what the insurer needs to get or what you're entitled to get but not not just that but you're also threatening them that okay if you don't accept it if you want to go forward well we're going to go to arbitration and we're going to win that is unfair and again common sense will tell you that that is a fair, uh, unfair. All right, question number 73. Limiting insurance coverage based on marital status is usually illegal except when, okay? A says never. B says more than three divorces in a five-year period. 
C says more than three um, divorces in a 10 year period. D says applying for group life insurance. Now, I don't know who gets <laughs> three divorces in a five year period. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe Kim Kardashian. <laughs> I'm just joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Okay, if, if you're a, a Kim Kardashian fan, please don't come after me. But didn't she have a wedding, uh, no, a marriage, I think, was it to Chris Humphreys? The marriage lasted 72 hours. I, shoot, I, I think that was the shortest marriage ever, 72 hours. So if she does three of that, she will definitely <laughs> have three divorces in five years. Now, now, I don't know anyone who gets divorced uh, three times in five years. If um, if that's the case, my friend, Cupid probably doesn't like you. So you should just give up on love. But anyway, so, uh, and I throw all these jokes, you no, know, because insurance sometimes can be boring. No, you know, insurance agents, when most people think about insurance agents, you know, they think about this middle age. God showing up in his gray suit and all boring and dull and, you know, uh, you can have fun. Uh, you see, I'm, you know, I'm for you guys uh, watching on YouTube, I'm in a hoodie, you know, um, I have my cap flipped back, I'm chilling, I'm cracking jokes. So insurance doesn't have to be cut and dry, it doesn't have to be boring, okay? You can make it fun. And I'm trying to make this um, a little fun because I know the material is a little complicated. So got to throw in a little jokes here and there. But what's the correct answer? So limiting insurance coverage based on marital status is usually illegal except when. Well, here's the thing, guys. It is never, never, ever is it illegal. Now, never, ever is it legal to limit insurance coverage based on marital status. Okay, you cannot limit someone's insurance coverage based on their race, based on their, um, you know, based on their gender, based on their marital status, based on their national origin, based on their sexual orientation. All of those are considered illegal. All right. So again, you just have to know. Um, you just have to know the law, right? The same thing, the same law that applies, you know, same anti-discrimination laws, you know, those, those same things apply. Now, what insurance company can do, they will just charge you a little bit more. For example, if you're a man, they won't limit your coverage, but they'll just charge you more because as a man, on average, you're going to die sooner than a woman. And if you're old, they're going to charge you a little bit more because on average, older people will uh, have a greater chance of dying than younger people, right? but it cannot limit your coverage. That will be considered discrimination. So let's come here and read the answer feedback. It says, uh, insurance coverage can never be denied based on sex or marital status. Marital status may be considered for the purpose of determining eligibility for dependent benefits. So if I have my um, insurance, um, then, the insurance company can say, oh, you know what? You can decide who you want to be your benefits, right? So um, no, no, who you want to be your, your beneficiary. Now, for insurance purposes, a beneficiary is just someone who is entitled to receive benefits, right? Beneficiary, 
who is entitled to receive benefits. So you can use that for your group insurance and the insurance uh, company could say for group life insurance, they could say, okay, the only people entitled to receive benefits are your spouse and your children. You'll find this in, in group life insurance a lot. Whereas with individual policy, it's not limited, right? Uh, for, for individual life insurance policy, I can decide to make um, you know, I can decide to make my best friend as my beneficiary. I can decide to make my estate as my beneficiary. I can decide to make my favorite charity uh, as the beneficiary or make my high school or my middle school the beneficiary or my uncle, my auntie. But most of the time for group insurance, the, the employer sets the rule. So the employer may say, okay, you can only add your spouse and you will find this a lot in a, uh, in a lot of employer group insurance plans. You can only add your spouse and your children as beneficiaries, all right? All right, let's move on. Question number 74. Blank is the minimum number of subscribers or domestic mutual insurance companies must have in order to transact business. A, 50, B, 65, C, 500, D, 200. What is the answer? Again, guys, uh, just a quick reminder. I hope you're following me. Um, have a pen and paper and try to take the, you no, know, try and answer the questions before I answer them so you can see how well you understand the material. Again, this is all District of Columbia laws. So this one will be different from your state, but you can still follow along, but just to let you know, this is just for District of Columbia. So the correct answer here will be 200. So correct answer will be D. Let's come here to our answer feedback. So it says a mutual insurance company must have at least 200 people subscribed, resulting in at least 200,000 of insurance. Note, any domestic stock company may become a mutual company if approved by the commissioner. So in Washington, D.C., you can switch from being a mutual insurance, uh, you can switch from being a stock company to a mutual insurance company provided you are approved by the insurance um, commissioner. And there are certain uh, requirements you have to meet, um, you know, you have to pay some money and all of that stuff, but it is, uh, it is possible, right? So, so the same way you can be able to convert Right. If you got a group insurance, you can convert to an individual insurance. It's the same way um, insurance companies can also convert. For example, if you have your business, if you have an LLC, you can convert that LLC to a C corp, right? Uh, to a C corporation. So mutual insurance, no, I'm sorry, stock insurance companies can be converted to mutual insurance companies in the District of Columbia. Number 75, it says, what is another name for an authorized insurer? Again, what is authorized? We talked about that not too long ago. Number, option A says licensed, B says approved, C says admitted, D says legal. So what is another name for an authorized insurer? So now we can, we can eliminate some things. We know D, it says here legal. That is just a filler. As I told you earlier, 
on the exam, you're going to have some fillers, some things that don't make any sense. They are not related to insurance. They just put it there to throw you off. But if you study the material, you should have an idea, right? So uh, we know that that is not, uh, no, it's not D. Then it comes down to license. We know uh, authorized insurers, even though that would be equivalent to being licensed, but that's not a legal term for it. So we come down to approved versus admitted. Now, yes, they're approved. When they're authorized, that means they're approved, but that is not the insurance jargon. Insurance jargon is admitted, all right? So remember what I told you earlier, you, you have to know these synonyms. Authorized is the same as admitted. No, non-admitted is the same as non-authorized. Uh, producer, same as um, agent, insurer, same as insurance company, right? Uh, participating company, same as mutual insurance company, non-participating company, same as um, same as stock insurance company. So you have to know all these synonyms, guys, because they will be on your exam. Like this one will be an easy question to pass. All right. So the answer feedback here it says another name for authorized is admitted. An insurer, an authorized insurer is the one that meets the state's financial requirements and are approved to transact business. While an authorized or admitted insurer is approved for test purposes, they are not a core, they are not called approved insurers. Okay, so just know that. All right. So now let's move here to the last chapter for this. We got about 15 more questions to go. That's chapter six. And this one is just the District of Columbia laws and regulations for life insurance. So this one is limited just to life insurance. So let's start with. All right, so guys, before we start chapter six, this is the last chapter for part one. Uh, this is our first set of videos for mental pass. We just hope you're learning something so far, but I'm always someone who's open to suggestions. So whether good or bad, but I want to uh, hear from you. I want your feedback. What do you think? I mean, what are, uh, some things you like about the video so far. What are some things you don't like? You know, I want to hear uh, all of that. You can feel free to put uh, in the comment section. Trust me, I will not be offended because by you pointing out even errors, you know, as I said, um, I've been doing this for a while, but I still don't know every single thing. Right? I'm learning every day. So maybe I may some mistakes somewhere in the explanation, let me know. You know. If you like this, let me know. What what state are you from? And you know, if you're from California, from you know, wherever, Hawaii, New Jersey, New York, I wanna know because now I'm gonna also look at that to be able to determine, okay, you see, I have a lot of people from California in a comment session, so maybe, we should create a course for California. Oh, I have a lot of people you know, in the comment section from the great state of 
Texas. So maybe we should um, create a course for Texas next, okay? So show your state some love. Put your state down there with your Texas, whatever. Let me know. And also fill out the survey. The survey is in the link. And with that survey, if we decide to uh, create a course for your state, then we're going to email you. And we're also going to be doing live webinars in the future. So when we're doing those live webinars, we're going to send out invitations. So if you put your name on the survey, then you also want to get invitations. Even for our podcast, you know, uh, we're also going to create a, uh, a podcast for this. So I'm going to take the audio and um, upload it to the podcast. So if you want to listen to the podcast also, because some of you don't have five hours to sit down and listen you know, you know, and watch a training video nonstop, right? But now you can listen five hours to a podcast because you are driving, you are at work, you know, you are working, you got your earpiece in, you're listening, you're learning, right? So if you want that, fill out the survey, right? So uh, let me know in the survey. So guys, I hope you're enjoying, I'm having fun. Again, I'm getting a little tired to be honest because this is my longest YouTube video uh, so far. I think we're we're almost at the five hour mark or maybe we've passed five hours now. So, but I think we should have about maybe an hour to hour and a half left. Uh, so we're almost there. Let me get another sip of my hazelnut decaf Starbucks coffee. Hmm, very delicious. So that's one of the good things about videos. So for you guys watching on um, YouTube or Instagram, uh, whatever video platform you're watching on, you can see <laughs> you can see all these things. But uh, if you're listening to the podcast, you can only imagine. All right, so let's proceed. We have about 15 more questions to go. Question number 76. What? That's question 76 here. It says, after an insurance policy has been in effect for blank years, an insurer may loan an amount equal to the insurance policy's blank at a minimum fixed interest rate of blank. A, three years, um, comma, cash surrender value, comma, 8%. B, three years, comma, minimum buyout value, Common 8%. C, four years, common total paid premium, common 6%. D, four years, common cash value, common 6%. So, what is the correct answer? So, you have to know it says after an insurance policy has been in effect for blank years, the correct answer is three years, then the insurer be loan an amount equal to the company's cash surrender value. Now, these are terms you have to understand. So cash value is just the total value of cash that a, um, that a life insurance agent, uh, life insurance owner has, but that's not necessarily available to them to withdraw auto loan. So the cash value is just the total premiums they have paid minus the cost of insurance. 
So let's say if the um, insurers yeah, the cost of insurance is um, is five thousand dollars, and let's say you're paying um, ten thousand dollars a year in premiums. Okay, I'm I'm just making up numbers. Uh, the cost of insurance is not that high, but let's just make up some numbers. So the insurance cost of insurance is five thousand dollars. So the cost of insurance is just the cost of doing business. You know that is what goes into um, the insurance company paying out benefits, uh, you know, death benefits, it goes into the insurance company paying the employees, um, overhead expenses, all of that, right? So the cash value will be whatever you pay, the total you pay, total premiums minus the insurance company's cost. That's your cash value. For the first 10 years, most of the time, if you're paying the bare minimum, no, at least for the first 15 years, if you're paying just the bare minimum premium, which is called um, minimum required uh, premium, if you're just paying the bare minimum for the 10 years, first 10 years or 15 years, then your, your cash surrender value will always be less than your cash value. Now, unless you're paying a lot more, then you can be able to have your cash value equal your um, cash surrender value a lot sooner, right? Now, so the cash value is what you have. The cash surrender value is what you have access to. So think about it as me having, let's just say I have $10,000 in my bank account. But out of that 10,000, I have $7,000 in a CD. No, a CD is a certificate of uh, of deposit, but I have that seven thousand in a three year CD. So that means for three years, even though I have that money in my bank account, I have ten thousand total in my bank account. But out of that ten thousand, um, I, I I cannot touch seven thousand for at least three years. Now I have access to three thousand. That three thousand is in my checking account. So I can you know, take that out anytime. So it's the same way, you know, think about the cash surrender value as the money you have access to, the money you can, you can take, you can withdraw at any time, you can take a loan from at any time. The cash value is the money that you have, but you just don't have access to everything just yet. You will eventually have access to it, but just not now, all right? So just to clear that out. So, uh, so the insurer may loan an amount equal to the insurance policy's cash surrender value. That's the amount you have available. In Washington, D.C., the maximum interest rate an insurance company can charge for loaning out money to you is 8%. Now, from my experience, uh, for the companies that I've worked with in the past, uh, no, I've been appointed with in the past. Average is between one to maybe two, two and a half percent, right? So they're going to charge you two and a half percent, then they're going to credit you um, two percent interest. So it, it, it almost ends up being a watch. So you're technically paying only 0.5 percent interest, all right? So the correct answer here will be A, 
let me read this uh, feedback. It says, uh, an insurance company may loan an amount equal to a policy's cash surrender value if the policy has been in force for at least seven or no, three years. The interest rate and insurer charges on a loan in the District of Columbia, no, may not exceed 8%. No, that is for life insurance policy loans. Cash surrender value, as I said earlier, is a portion of the policy owner's premiums available for withdrawal or to take a loan against. Cash value is total premiums paid minus cost of insurance. Number 77, in order for a loan equating the cash surrender value um, to be issued by the insurer, how long must a policy has, have been enforced, uh, no, have been enforced? Okay, let me repeat that question. In order for a loan equating, uh, it shouldn't be equating, I'm sorry. In, in order for a loan um, equaling, <laughs> uh, well, hey, I'm not an, um, an, an English professor, so uh, I guess there's gra grammatical error in that. But in order for a loan equating the cash value to be issued by the insurer, how long must a policy have been enforced for? Uh, a says immediately, B says three years, C says five years, um, and D says six months. Correct answer is three years, okay? So in the District of Columbia, in order for a loan um, to be equal to the cash surrender value, right? The loan has to be, uh, the policy has to be enforced for at least three years. That means that if if you have, if I've had my policy, my insurance policy for let's say two years, and let's say my cash surrender value is ten thousand, then I cannot take out all that ten thousand by law, right? The insurance company can say, okay, you know what, uh, we're going to give you um, maybe eight thousand. But after I've had that policy for at least three years, then District of Columbia rules say that the insurance company can give me a loan equal to that maximum cash value I have, which is 10,000. So let's read the feedback. It says an insurance company may loan an amount equal to, the, to a policy's cash surrender value if the policy has been enforced for at least three years. Again, remember, the interest rate and insurer charges on a loan may not exceed 8% per year. All right, question 78. Chinedu uh, is a professional scuba diver who wants a loan to purchase his dream vehicle. What protects a lender if he is involved in an accident and unable to continue making payments? A, credit life insurance, B, credit accident and health insurance, C, lender's guarantee insurance, D, none of the above. So what are they asking here? Okay, so Chinedu, by the way, Chinedu is uh, an African name, um, is mostly Nigerian. To be more specific, uh, it's an Igbo name from the Nigerian uh, Igbo tribe, okay? It's, it's, it's usually a male's name. So Chinedu is a professional scuba diver who wants to purchase a loan, no, uh, no, who wants a loan to purchase his dream vehicle? 
all of that is all fill, uh, those are all fillers, okay? We don't care um, what Chinedu does, why he wants to get along. We don't care about that. So in the exam, you have to learn to separate fillers from the actual question. So the actual question is what protects a lender if he is involved in an accident and unable to continue payments? So how would the lender get the money back? So the first one says credit life insurance. What is credit life insurance? So credit life insurance is just what it says, right? Credit life insurance. But in this case, the, you know, the insured, right, is the owner. The insurer, um, no, no, the, the borrower or the debtor is the insured. And they are also the owner. They are responsible for paying the premiums, but the creditor is the beneficiary. So, God forbid, if something were to happen, let's say I, you know, let's say I take out a big loan, God forbid, I die, and I have credit life insurance. That credit life insurance will pay the um, creditor whatever money I owe them. And you know, credit life insurance, most of the time, is with you as decreasing term insurance because every month or every year, you know, the balance of that loan is decreasing, right? So the insurance, um, you know, coverage will also be decreasing. B, it says credit accident and health insurance. So what is credit accident and health insurance? Again, that is just, um, you know, insurance that protects the creditor, God forbid, if the um, borrower becomes disabled, all right? And then lenders guarantee insurance, that's just a filler, doesn't make sense, none of the above. So yeah, the correct answer is um, B, credit accident and health insurance, because they want to know what protects him, uh, what protects the lender if he is involved in an accident or unable to make payments. Now, if he was involved in an accident and died, then it will be credit life insurance, because that's credit. But, um, but in this case, the assumption is he's still alive, but he just cannot make payments. So that'll be credit accident and health insurance. Let's read it, uh, answer feedback. It says, um, a def uh, as defined in a policy, insurance on a debtor that covers debt payments on specific credit transactions during disability of the debtor is a credit accident and health insurance. Credit insurance is a life insurance policy that is usually written as a decreasing term insurance. So on the exam, you may see credit insurance, credit life insurance, but it all means the same thing, okay? Credit insurance is the same as, uh, no, uh, credit life. It may just say credit life um, is the same as credit life insurance. All right, question 79. What protects lenders against financial loss due to death of a borrower, right? So A says credit life insurance, B says credit motor and health insurance, C says credit accident and health insurance, D, all of the above. What is the correct answer? Again, what are they trying to ask here? What protects lenders against financial loss due to death of the borrower? So I just talked about this earlier, right? So be credit life insurance. So if a, if a borrower dies, if they have credit life insurance, I know I as the lender, at least I have peace of mind because I know I'm gonna get my money back. So, so credit life insurance is if the debtor dies and it, uh, no, then the 
lender gets the money, right? Uh, we get the debt payoff. Credit, accident, and health insurance is more thing about disability. There is nothing called uh, credit, credit motor and health insurance, okay? That just doesn't make sense. So correct answer here will be A, credit life insurance. Let's read the feedback. It says, um, upon the death of the borrower, credit life insurance on the life of a debtor will pay off the outstanding loan balance. Question 80, we are making progress, guys. 11 more questions to go. And once more, I have a sip of my hazelnut decaf Starbucks coffee. Hold on, why am I um, giving Starbucks a free, uh, no, a free promotion? I could promote <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts or I could promote, <laughs> I could promote my own, um, no, I could promote my own coffee. Anyway, question 80. It says, what protects a lender in case a debtor fails to complete loan payments due to disability? Again, this is just, no, uh, similar, no, they just reworded the question, but it's similar to what we saw not too long ago. It says, A, borrower's disability, B, lender's disability, C, credit accident and health, D, credit life. Correct answer will be credit accident and health. So you think credit accident and health, think um, credit, um, no disability. By the time you hear credit, you know that it has something to do with a creditor, right? So credit life. So, so, so that will be able to narrow your option choices. When you hear the word credit, you know it has something to do with lender and borrower, something that protects the lender. So in this case, it's for disability. So the answer will be C, credit accident and health. And that's be the answer choice. It says, while the debtor is disabled, a credit accident and health insurance will cover debt payment due on a specific plan. Question 81, to protect oneself, um, again, lender in this case, against non-payment of loans due to disability or death of the borrower, what should one uh, no lender obtain? A, um, credit insurance, B, disability insurance, C, debt insurance, uh, no, C, debt insurance, D, life insurance, okay? To protect oneself, the lender, against non-payment of loans due to disability or death of the borrower, what should one lender obtain? So the lender can obtain, in this case, correct answer will be uh, A, credit insurance. Now, credit insurance, you have two types of credit insurance. You have credit um, accident and, and um, health insurance, and you have credit life insurance. So life, the credit life insurance will just protect the um, lender if the borrower dies. And credit accident and health insurance will protect the lender if the borrower becomes disabled or sometimes if they become sick and they cannot make the loan payment, okay? But in this case, they're asking what protects the lender against payment of loans due to disability or debt. So it can be either or. 
So in that case, it won't just be one. It won't you know, just be credit life insurance or it won't just be um, credit accident health. It'll be credit insurance that covers everything. So yet, this is life insurance. Well, not just life insurance, no. Credit life insurance is what protects the lender, not life insurance. Life insurance protects the policy holder. Uh, um, so that is, um, no, that is not that, okay? So we know that is fine. No, no, that is all. No, life insurance is out there to give the policy holder, which, um, no, well, yeah, to protect the policy holder, protect the beneficiary, all of that. It's not debt insurance. There's nothing called debt insurance. Again, that's true of not disability insurance. It must have the word credit in it. So correct answer is EA credit. So let's read the feedback. It says, incomplete loan payments resulting from death or disability of the borrower gets covered up by credit insurance. So let's talk more about credit insurance here. You have two types of credit insurance, as I said earlier. You have credit life and credit accident and health. Credit life insurance is just life insurance on the debtor that's owned by you know, the um, you know, creditor. Credit accident and health is disability insurance on the debtor owned by the, by the creditor, all right? Uh, the creditor is the owner and beneficiary of the policy. I'm sorry I said earlier that the um, borrower is the owner. No, in this case, credit life insurance, the no, the owner is the uh, no the the creditor is the owner and the beneficiary of the policy, but the person who is responsible for paying the premiums is the borrower, and and they will be the insurer. All right. So the creditor will get insurance on the life of the borrower, but the borrower will be responsible for paying the premiums. So premiums are paid by the debtor, again, which is the same as borrower. Now, keep in mind, policies longer than five years in the District of Columbia are not subject to credit insurance regulations. So if a, if a, you know, if, if, uh, if a policy is longer than five years, or it's been enforced uh, longer than five years in one. All right. Question 82. What protects a lender if an 85-year-old man takes a loan to buy a new house, but then dies before paying all the debts? Again, when he dies, you know, you know it has something to do with life insurance, right? So A says all of the below. B says credit, accident, and health insurance. C says credit accident or credit death and dismemberment. And D says credit life insurance. Well, we know that there's nothing called credit, um, no, I'm sorry. Uh, well, accidental death and dismemberment, it doesn't have to work credit. So as long as it doesn't have to work credit in front of it, just exit out because you know it has nothing to do with a lender or it has nothing to do with a creditor. It must have the word credit in front of it so we can take out accidental death and dismemberment. So it leaves us with B and C, um, B and D, right? But in this case, we know it says uh, that the 85 year old man died before he paid off all his debt. So that will automatically be life insurance. So it'll be credit life insurance. So here, 
the feedback says Credit Life Insurance, AKA another name for it is Credit Life, pays off the outstanding loan balance in the event of a borrower's death. Accidental death and dismemberment, which will be abbreviated sometimes as AD&D, insurance is not a type of credit insurance. AD&D only pays out if the insured's death is caused by an accident. In addition, in some AD&D policies, that's accidental death and dismemberment, it may pay a portion of the death benefit in cases of loss of land or sight. Question 83. What type of insurance uh, will pay off an outstanding loan balance upon the death of an insurer? Or, or the type of insurance that will pay off an outstanding loan balance upon the death of an insurer is known as what? A says franchise insurance, B says level term insurance, level term life, C says credit life, D says cash surrender value. Now, we can just go ahead and rule out some of these things. We know cash surrender value is not uh, insurance. I don't know what is franchise insurance, but they, again, those are fillers to throw you off. So it comes down to level term insurance and credit life. But remember how I said, if anything has to do with paying off a loan balance, right, or, uh, um, uh, or, or has to do with creditor, it must start with the word credit. So that leaves us with only one option that's C, credit life insurance. So the feedback here says, um, credit life insurance, AKA credit life pays off the outstanding loan balance in the event of a borrower's death. Yay, we are making progress. Question 84, almost there. Hmm. My coffee is getting a little cold. But let me take more sip of it. All right. So question 84 says, Chang and Hong are married. Hong is the beneficiary of Chen's $500,000 life insurance policies. Chang is accidentally killed in a car crash. Six months later, Hong is notified by John, Chen's best friend, that he owes him 50,000 in personal loan, for which he has a notarized loan document as evidence. John wants Hong to repay him the 50,000 out of the 500,000 death benefits. Can Hong legally deny payment of Chen's debt? What insurance provision gives her that right to do so? Okay, so if it's yes or if no, what insurance provision gives her that right to do so? So this is a very long question. Again, for these long questions, you want to read them at least two times and you want to dissect them. But let's go to the option choices. It says A, no, and revocable beneficiary clause. B says yes, legal protection clause. C says yes, spendthrift clause. D says no, irrevocable beneficiary destination. So pretty much what is this question saying? It's, it's saying, okay, uh, it's trying to find out if you are a beneficiary and you receive life insurance um, death benefits after the insured dies, can the insurance creditors 
come after you for that money? Can they come after you? Uh, and if it's yes or no, what provision, uh, what part of the insurance law allows that? So yeah, the correct answer will be C, spendthrift clause. Yes, you, in this case, Hong can legally deny payment of chance debt. Why? Because according to the spendthrift clause, life insurance proceeds, the death benefits of are off limits for from the insured's um, creditors. So God forbid, if I die and my family receives my death benefit, you know, my, my, my creditors cannot come after them and say, oh, you know, Biko owe us, you know, 50,000 or he owe us 100,000 payers. No, 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 no. Now, so the spendthrift clause was put in place to protect the beneficiaries from creditors of the insurer. So we know it's not um, revocable beneficiary clause. We know it's not legal protection clause, all of that. So let's read here. The explanation. It says, um, yes, Hong can legally deny paying John because of the spendthrift clause. According to the spendthrift clause, the death benefit paid to the, to the beneficiary is protected from the insurer's creditors. However, it is not protected from the beneficiary's creditors. So now the insurer's creditors cannot come after you. But now, as the beneficiary, if you owe someone's money, they can come after that. <laughs> they can come after the benefits, okay? So let's talk more about this spendthrift clause. Note, the spendthrift clause in a life insurance contract can be used to require that the death benefit be paid in a fixed amount or fixed period of time. Unfortunately for the beneficiary, he or she does not have the right to select a different settlement option. The beneficiary also cannot borrow from the death benefit or assign the proceeds as a collateral. So the spendthrift clause is something for those of you who have kids, that's something that I recommend you do. Um, so if you have life insurance, you can say, oh, and, 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 and just by the way, aside, Life insurance proceeds can never be paid to kids younger than the age of 18. Now, they can hold the money for them until they turn 18, um, but they cannot pay out the death benefit to the kids, even if they're the beneficiaries until they turn 18. So that's the mistake I see a lot of people making, and I advise my clients against that. Like, no, you have one or two choices. You can either make the minor child who's under the age of 18 as the beneficiary. Uh, no, you can make a, uh, make a trust as the beneficiary of your life insurance policy. And then you can make your kids, your minor kids as the beneficiary of the trust. So in that case, the money is paid, you know, your death benefit is paid to your trust. And then you have a trustee who is managing your trust can now um, give that money uh, to your kids. But if you just put your kids as the beneficiary, people have made this mistake so many times. I see clients making it and I warn people all of the time, 
Do not make your minor kids the beneficiary of your life insurance policy unless you don't want them to have access to the money until they turn 18, all right? So that is one way to do it. The other way to do it is just, if you don't want to um, make the trust the beneficiary is to just name someone you trust as the beneficiary and trust that that person will take care of your kid. Now, the spendthrift clause, you use that sometimes. Um, you use the spendthrift clause to kind of limit um, reckless spending of the beneficiary because after your God forbid, you are long gone and dead, you don't have any control in how um, your beneficiaries spend the money, right? Uh, there's this story of this guy, uh, one of my former clients, um, this was a long time ago, uh, older guy, he passed away and, and his death benefit was, I think, $3 million. And I mean, his, his kids were all grown, you know, in their 30s. Cut long story short, $3 million. Yeah, about three kids um, left it with the kids. Don't you know, within less than five years, two of those kids misused, uh, misused their portion because each of them got one million, one million dollars each. And you know, they misused that money and went bankrupt. Within you know, five years, within five years, they went bankrupt. When I mean bankrupt, they, uh, they lost everything. They, you know, they were buying exotic cars and, I mean, just crazy lifestyle, you know, you know smoking cocaine, you know, um, or smoking crack, um, just doing drugs, partying, doing all these, I mean, crazy things, you know, but they lost all that money. Think about $1 million within five years. The truth is, when you don't work for something, when you don't earn something, you don't really know how to manage it. That's that's just a, um, a fact, right? That's why you see most people who get inheritance most of the time mismanage it and they, they and they end up going broke or filing for bankruptcy because they didn't earn it. When you don't earn something, you you, you know you really don't value it that much, and you won't know how to uh, manage it. Well, yeah, and the same thing with money. So the spendthrift clause also protects um, beneficiaries in that now it protects beneficiaries from themselves. So you as the policyholder, you can say, okay, you know what? Because of the spendthrift clause, I don't want the insurance company to give all of the death benefit upfront. You know what? Maybe I have $1 million death benefit and I have one child. Okay, I want you to give no, you can you can divide over a period of let's say um, twenty years, right? Year one, give the child hundred thousand dollars. Then, uh, when the child gets out of college, give them maybe two hundred thousand dollars. When they're married. And, and have their first kid or whatever, give them 400,000. When they turn 50 years old, give them, um, give them maybe uh, 400,000. And when they have their first grandkid, give them the remaining 100,000. So now the benefit of that is the beneficiary has no right to change that so they cannot, even after you're long gone and dead, they cannot go back 
and change that, the insurance company will follow that. So that, so that helps to protect them from themselves. So even if the person doesn't have good um, money management habits, uh, that will protect them because now at least you have peace of mind that even after you're long gone and dead, they can um, just mismanage all that money and blow it off within a few years. So you can put the spendthrift clause there. You can either have them give, give a fixed amount regularly or they can give all the money over um, a certain period of time. So the spendthrift clause also protects the beneficiaries from um, reckless spending. All right. So you see, what I try to do here, guys, I don't just want to just prepare you for the exam, but also give you a little real life scenario because uh, uh, if you are going to become a licensed agent in the coming weeks and months. So this is also partly training, uh, not just a licensed agent, but in order to be a good agent, uh, to be able to serve your clients well. And just a little promotion here, if you don't have a company to work with, or if you have no idea, um, fill out the Google form, uh, you know, the Google um, survey that I have attached. And just let me know, Are you? will you be open to exploring um, owning your own insurance agency? Yes, you can own your, your own insurance agency. The startup fee is very little and uh, no, I can walk you through that. And for those who qualify, I can even make you one of my business partners. But fill out the form if you want to learn more about that. Okay, question 85. Blank is the grace period for scheduled premium payments on a variable life insurance policy. A says 10 days, B 30 days, C, 31 days, D, 60 days. Blank is the grace period for scheduled premium payments on a variable life insurance policy. So the correct answer here will be right here is 60 days, okay? So it says here, all scheduled premiums in a variable life policy, no, I'm, I'm sorry, that's not, um, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, the the correct answer is actually uh, C. Is is the correct answer is 31 days, not 60 days. All right. So all scheduled premium payments. Let me go ahead and make this change. Are we? You all make mistakes. All right. So all scheduled premiums in a variable life policy have a 31 day grace period after the premium due date, okay? So for variable life insurance um, policies in the District of Columbia, they have a 31 day grace period now. Let's talk about grace period a little bit. Grace period is just what the name means, right? Grace, you know, uh, for example, if you are a tenant, most landlords will give you a 30 day grace period. Um, so if your rent is late, within 30 days, you can still pay, well, they'll, they'll charge you a little late fee, late payment fee, but they will not try to evict you. Now, after 30 days, that is when they're gonna start the eviction process, 
take you to court and try to get you thrown out, right? So think about the grace period as just that grace. You know, after you're late for your payment, it gave you extra time to, um, to pay out without getting into trouble. So it's the same thing with, um, with life insurance policies, right? So now keep in mind that if you were to die during that grace period, the insurance company is still liable to pay out the death benefit. The only thing they're gonna do is they'll just subtract whatever premium you owe them from the death benefit. So let's say you have a $100,000 policy and your, and your premium was supposed to be $1,000. Then they'll just give your, your beneficiaries $99,000 to subtract, um, no, they'll subtract the, um, the premium that you owe. But on the exam, you probably come across this. Uh, it says, so um, Michael um, has $100,000 um, life insurance policy. Uh, Michael uh, was late, um, you know, 25 days in paying his premium and, 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 and Michael died on day 25. Um, Will the insurance company, um, uh, no, what, or I'm asking, no, what death, what amount of death benefit would the insurance company pay? Then A will say zero, B will say something in effect of 100,000, C will say 99,000, and then um, D will say something else. So you know that if they die within that grace period, they're still, um, their beneficiaries are still entitled to the death benefit, just uh, the insurance company will just subtract whatever premium. So in that case, the answer will be 100,000 minus the $1,000 premium. So his family will get 99,000. So you may know the correct answer. Oh yes, if someone dies in the grace period, they can get their death benefit. That's true, partially true. But what's even more true is you have to go a step further is that the insurance company will subtract whatever premium you owe them. So the correct answer in that case will not just be the death benefit, but it'll be the death benefit minus whatever premium is owed. So you have to do a little math uh, in that case. So those are some of the tricky questions on the exam. And I, and I found out that <laughs> a lot of people have problems with that, okay? So just to keep that in mind, all right. So let's, let's get back here. Um, other District of Columbia provisions on variable life insurance policies. Number one, a 10-day free look period from the date they insured, uh, again, uh, or if the or policy owner is different from the insurer receives the policy or 45 days from the date of application, whichever one occurs later. So what is free look period? Think about free look period as your, um, as your refund period. You know, all of us go shopping and most to us will have a, you know, a 90-day return period, right? Uh, you no know, um, 90-day return policy. So yes, you can come and get whatever. If you don't like it, you just bring it back uh, with your receipt and we'll refund your money, right? So for life insurance policies, it's the same way you have a, you have a refund policy but this case is called free look period. Right? So when you think when you have free look, think refund, okay? So for variable life insurance policies in the District of Columbia, uh, 
policyholders have a 10-day free look period where after they get that um, policy, they can return it for whatever reasons, no questions asked, and they will get the money back and the policy will be canceled. Uh, I, I, I had this with one of my clients recently. Uh, you know, he, you know, he, you know, he got a policy, um, but last minute of time, after the policy was approved, he pays premium everything, he changed his mind. And he was freaking out, oh my God, I paid so much money. Uh, you know, <laughs> is it too late? Am I gonna get my money back? And I told him, relax, <laughs> you have 10 days. All you gotta do is just let me know if you don't want it, I'm gonna call the insurance company. They're gonna send you some forms, which they did. They sent him uh, you know, um, a cancellation form. You fill it out and send it to them, telling them that he doesn't want it anymore. He filled it out and uh, within, within a few days, I think it took them seven or eight days, they were able to process it. Um, they were able to cancel the policy and um, and give him a refund. So you have a uh, you have a free look period. Now that ten day free look is mostly the standard in most states. I mean, in almost all the states I'm licensing, um, ten days is a standard free look period. So this is something that is just not applying to Washington D.C. to most it applies to most states. But the other thing is you have either that or forty five days from the uh, date of application. So when you put in your application, uh, you have 45 days um, you know, to return it or 10 days after uh, you know, or, 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 or 10 days after you receive it, whichever one is later. The second thing uh, about variable insurance in the District of Columbia is the reinstatement of the policy. Uh, you no, know, you can reinstate the policy within two years of lapse as long as the insurer provides evidence of insurability and submits a written application. Now, the standard provision for uh, reinstating a lapse policy is three years. It's, it's three years in most states. But for variable insurance in the state of um, Washington, DC, for variable insurance, the reinstatement period is dropped down by one year. So instead of three years, it's two years. But for all other um, life insurance policies, it's three years. But for variable insurance is two years. So that's something to keep in mind. Now, in contestability by the insurer um, after two years. So, and not just for variable uh, policies, but for all policies. So what that means is the insurance company cannot come back after two years and say, oh, oh there was um, no, there was a lie on your application. So we're sorry, we cannot cover your claims or we cannot pay their benefits, no. Right, so the two insurance company and this two year is a standard provision across, I think most of the states or all states, they have two years to contest whatever you put in your application. They can, they can refuse to pay benefits for whatever reason, as long as it's legal and they can prove it. They can say you committed fraud, you lied on your application, whatever, they have two years to come up with that, but after two years, if they if they can't come up with that, then they cannot cancel your policy for any reason. They cannot contest it. The only reason they can cancel your policy is if you do not pay premiums, right? And then that two year income, um, no, that two year incontestability clause also comes 
you know, play for suicides because we all know some people kill themselves, they're depressed, and you know, we understand that. So for life insurance, if you kill yourself within the first two years of getting a policy, right, then insurance company will not pay out their benefits. What they'll do is they'll just return your premiums, uh, the total premium you pay to, of course, the total premium minus cost of insurance, they'll return that to your beneficiaries. So if you die within two years, that's it. Now, if you die after two years, no, if you kill yourself after two years, you commit suicide after two years, then uh, the insurance company is still liable to pay out the death benefits. So the two-year incontestability clause is there to protect you the uh, you know, to protect you, the policyholder, and also the beneficiary. Where the insurance company cannot come, you can pay um, your premium regularly, and God forbid you die. Then after ten years, the insurance company says, "Oh, you know what? I'm I'm sorry, we can't you know we can't pay out any claims because we found X Y Z on his application. He lied. No, no, no. The court, the law says." You have two years to find dirt. You have two years to come up with a good reason to cancel the policy or not pay claims. But after two years, the only reason you can give for canceling that policy is non-payment of premiums. So that protects the insurance company because what used to happen before that law was passed is sometimes you have your insurance for years, 10, 20, 15 years. And last minute of time, you file a claim and insurance company will come and say, oh, no, no, there was fraud on your application. You lied about this. No, you, no, you, uh, no, you lied and said you had, uh, no, you didn't have diabetes when you actually had diabetes. So I'm sorry, we can't pay our claims. So this law was passed to protect policyholders. All right, question 86. It says, Ahmed takes out a $20,000 loan to start his online business. One year later, he dies after only repaying 3,000 of the loan. Which of the following statements is true? A, says his city small business administration will pay the balance to the lender. B, says the lender will be paid off if Emmett has credit life insurance. C, says his state's small business development agency will pay the balance to the lender. And D says the lender will never recover his or her money. So let's read this question one more time. Ahmed takes out a $20,000 loan to start his online business. One year later, he dies after only repaying $3,000 of the loan. Which of the following statement is correct? So the correct answer here would be the lender will be paid off if Ahmed has credit life insurance. Now, if B was not an answer choice, then the um, correct answer would be D, the lender will never recover his or her money. But in this case, it's saying if the lender has um, credit life insurance, they're gonna be paid off, which is correct. Let's read our answer choice. It says insurance that pays off a debt in events of a borrower's death is a credit life insurance on the life of a debtor. In this case, if Ahmed had credit life insurance, his lender will be paid off. So you see, 
I mean, I think we have about seven or eight questions just on credit insurance. <laughs> so there's a lot there. Okay, number 87, creditor insurance premium is usually paid by A, borrowers, B, lenders, C, the insurer, D, credit unions. So again, we can eliminate some of these answer choices. We know credit unions have nothing to do with insurance. Again, those are fillers thrown there to distract you so we can take that out. So then it says um, um, the insurer. Well, the insurer, which is the insurance company never pays premiums. So we know C is out. So your, your, your answer comes down to A or B. In this correct, in this case, the correct answer is A, borrowers, okay? So the premium for credit insurance is always paid by the borrower. So let's read the, the answer feedback. It says the borrowers or debtors are responsible for paying the credit insurance premiums. The debtor is the owner and insured for credit insurance policies. However, the lender is the beneficiary and is entitled to receive the benefits if the debtor dies or becomes disabled. All right, question 88. We have four more questions to go. Shaniqua's life insurance policy lapsed one year ago. Which insurance provision allows her to reactivate her policy within three years by submitting evidence of insurability in a new application. A says contestable clause, B says waiver of premium, C says grace period, D reinstatement. So what is this trying to um, ask? So this client, um, Shaniqua, she lapsed her policy one year ago, one year ago lapsed, Again, it's an insurance term, just meaning that your policy was canceled because of non-payment of premiums, okay? But the good thing is you usually have three years to reinstate that policy. As long as you pay all the um, back premiums you owe, um, you submit a new application and you show them evidence of insurability, that means you're not coming to sign on with them when you when you have you've been diagnosed with stage four cancer. No, okay, you're you're still pretty much healthy. So the correct answer here will be reinstatement provision, and it just you know, is pretty clear. You no, know, if she wants to reinstate or reactivate her policy, so we know what grace period is. We know waiver of premium is a it's a rider that God forbid if you were to become disabled or something happens, they will waive the premium. And there's nothing called contestable clause. There's incontestability clause, but nothing called contestability clause. So the correct answer here will be D, reinstatement provision. Let's read the feedback. It says, in the District of Columbia, the reinstatement provision allows a lapse policy to be reinstated within three years by paying outstanding premiums with interest proving insurability, submitting a new application and repaying any outstanding loans and interest. Note, for variable life insurance policies, reinstatement must be done within two years, all right? So if it doesn't specify variable life insurance policy on your exam, then go with three years for uh, 
for reinstatement. But if it specifies uh, variable life insurance, then it's two years. So it gets a little tricky. Variable life insurance is two years to reinstate in the District of Columbia. All others is three years. If it doesn't say variable, just go with three years. If it specifies variable, go with two years. Question 89. Leaving or terminating a group insurance plan and switching to an individual life policy without proof of insurability can be related to which of the following? A, conversion. B, reinstatement. C, renewable. D, risk sharing. Okay, so we know some of these are, again, just things out there to throw you up. This has nothing to do with risk sharing, okay? Risk sharing is just one of the five methods of handling um, risks. So we have the star, you gotta remember that, you know, we have star. Um, um, S stands for sharing, T stands for transferring risks, A stands for avoiding risks, R stands for, uh-oh, uh just, oh, my alarm is going off. Okay, yeah, so so R, R stands for, R stands for uh, reduction and the other R, um, so reduction and uh, retention, all right? So, and it has nothing to do with um, reinstatement. The correct answer is, um, is conversion. That's A. So let's come here. Let's come here and read the feedback. It says conversion is where a member terminates or forfeits membership in a group insurance plan and converts to an individual life uh, insurance plan without, uh, not individual whole life without proof of insurability, okay? So the good thing about group insurance is you can convert to a new individual insurance plan without proof of insurability. So you don't, you don't have to prove to them that you're healthy. I did the same thing when I left my last job. I just applied for um, no, um, the conversion and I got the same health insurance policy, everything, my deductible, my everything was the same. Now, just keep in mind that conversion, anytime you're converting from a group insurance policy to a uh, um, um, individual policy, your premium will always be higher. Why? Because group insurance is almost always, uh, the premium is always cheaper than individual insurance policy, okay? Because group insurance, your insurer is paying a bulk of the premium and it is, is group, right? So that risk is, is, is spread across um, all of your um, co-workers or members of the group. So anytime you convert from a group insurance to an individual insurance, your premium will always be higher. Question number 9090, uh, two more questions to go. Okay, what type of insurance will cover debt payments on a specific loan while the debtor is disabled? Oh my God, we're gonna beat this one thing like a dead horse. All right, A says loan payback insurance, 
B says debtors, disability, and health. C says credit, life, and health. And D says credit, accident, and health. Vicky, what type of insurance will cover debt payments on a specific loan while the debtor is disabled? Okay, so think about credit, then accident and health. Okay, so correct answer will be D, credit, accident, and health. So as we have feedback, it says a, a debtor has to have credit, accident, and health insurance to cover debt payments if or when he or she gets disabled and can no longer pay off debts on a loan. Ta-da, last question. Woo. This is the longest, this is a marathon. <laughs> All right. So we're on the last question, question 91. It says, Mary Beth recently quit her flight attendant job in order to focus on her kids. Again, that's all fill, uh, fillers. We don't, we don't care why she quit her job. We don't care what kind of job it is. That's all fillers to distract you. It says, now that Mary Beth is no longer with her employer, she can convert her group life insurance to A, term insurance with proof of insurability, B, term insurance without proof of insurability, C, whole life without proof of insurability, D, whole life with proof of insurability. So now, so right off the bat, you can be able to eliminate two options here, right? Because you know you can convert from group insurance to individual insurance without showing proof of insurability. You don't have to prove to the insurance company that you are insurable, okay? So A says here, term insurance with proof of insurability. So no, no, it's without proof of insurability. C say, uh, no, D says, whole life with proof of insurability. So now we can go ahead and eliminate A and D. As I told you guys earlier on the exam, you want to be able to eliminate some of the answer choices. If you don't know it um, off the top of your head, um, you have to be able to eliminate. So now it brings you to B and C. Now, it says term insurance without proof of insurability, whole life insurance without proof of uh, insurability. Correct answer is C, whole life without proof of insurability. Let's get here to our answer feedback. It says, a member who terminates membership in a group life insurance policy has the right to convert their group life insurance to a whole life insurance without proof of insurability. So again, this is Washington DC law, okay? For your state, if you're from another state, it may be different, but this, is in the state of Washington, D.C. A member who terminates membership in a group life insurance policy has the right to convert their group life insurance to a whole life insurance policy without proof of insurability. Let's talk more on group conversion. Number one, the insurer has the right to determine what type of policy employees can convert to, okay? So the insurer, the insurance company, even though it says um, whole life, but insurance company can choose to say, you know what, it was term insurance and we're converting you to term insurance, all right? So the insurer has the right to determine that. Two, the death benefit, AKA face amount, again, 
death benefit is the same as face amount, must equal the face amount in a group policy. However, the premium for individual policies, as I said not too long ago, will always be higher. All right? Premium for individual policies will always be higher when you convert. So you cannot get more than what you had before. You cannot get less than what you had before. It has to be the same exact. If you have $100,000 coverage on your job, your new insurance cannot be 1 million or, or it cannot be 50,000. It has to be the same exact thing, same benefits, same face amount, everything that's converting over, okay? So everything, uh, the face amount, again, what is face amount? Face amount is death benefit. The face amount has to be the same. And the employee has 31 days after leaving a group to convert the policy to an individual policy. Again, they have 31 days, not 30 for conversion in the District of Columbia, 31 days. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are done with our first video for Menzo Pass, our first life insurance video. Woo! This was long. I am tired right now. I'm so happy this is over. I hope you guys got benefit from this. I hope it was able to help you prepare for your exam. But as I said, right? Uh, as I said, you, you have just gone through a few questions. I think in total of about um, 40, 41 questions, okay? This is just a sample. You, if you enroll in our course, you can get up to a thousand questions. Think about getting a thousand of these questions and you prepare with those questions. There is absolutely no way you're gonna fail your exam. Absolutely, unless of course you fall asleep or, or you decide to not get any rest before your exam. But if you review 1,000 of these questions, think about how much you've learned from just 41 questions so far with the level of detail, explanation, with the way the questions are worded. Think about how much value you've gotten from just 41 questions. Now think about how much value you can get with 500 questions or 750 or 1,000. So that is what we're trying to do here for you guys. Let me share with you one last thing here. Um, let's see here. Um, but the last thing I wanna share with you guys is, so you've, you've, you've seen a lot. Right, I've shared a lot of information with you. Um, and it keeps, I've shared a lot of information with you. Hope you were able to learn something. We're gonna have a two of this video coming up. That'll be for question one to question 50. Uh, it should be coming up hopefully sometime next week. But what is the means of pass advantage? All right, what is the means of pass advantage? Now, when you take our course, it comes with some advantages. Number one, you're gonna have a private Facebook group. So that private Facebook group uh, is gonna afford you the opportunity to join our online community. Um, 
You can find study partners, accountability partners. Let's say if you're taking the, the Texas exam, you have other people who are studying for the Texas exam. And some of those people may live in your city. If you live in Houston, um, maybe you live downtown Houston around the medical center. You can have other people who live downtown Houston around the medical center. And you guys can, you know, uh, you, can, you can link up. And that's another way to even make friends because as you're about to go um, on with your new career in the insurance industry, you need to make friends. You need to network with other insurance professionals across the country. So that will be a good thing. So you can get along, uh, you know, get together with someone and you guys can meet up at a Starbucks you know, in your local city and study together or you can study online together. So our Facebook community is great. And that's one of the advantages Mental Pass has over, I think all of our competitors or most of them, we have that online community where you can find study partners, you can network, you can get help from uh, your fellow students or you can get help from uh, me or one of the other teachers. The second advantage of Mental Pass is you listen on the go. We're working on the podcast app, which should be coming on pretty soon, uh, maybe by next week, where we'll, where we'll convert all of this to the podcast episode. Now you can learn while you go, right? While you're on the go, while you're exercising, you're cooking, you're driving, you're even at work, you can have your earpiece in listening and learning. That just helps to uh, prepare you for your exam faster. The third thing is we have YouTube videos. This by no means is the last. We're gonna have more YouTube videos coming up, um, you know, teaching people. We're gonna have some on health insurance. We're gonna have other states for now, it's just Washington DC, all right? But you can learn from our YouTube lessons. And, and we're also gonna have webinars where you can come on, live webinars, you can come on and be able to learn. The fourth advantage we have is one-on-one, -on -one, okay? So we know some people just need or require that one-on-one -on -one, um, mentoring, that one-on-one -on -one tutoring, because a lot of people don't respond well in a group. You know, maybe they're too shy or, 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 or they need that, just that one-on-one -on -one hands-on approach. So if you want one-on-one -on -one, uh, tutoring, the same thing you just watched, but it can be one-on-one -on -one with you. If you're interested in that, fill out a survey and in the comment section, put that there and we can reach out to you and see how we can do that. The fifth advantage here, you have printed material. Now, there are some people who just prefer having to touch and feel a piece of paper. You know, they want to flip through pages, they want to highlight, they want to circle, they want to make notes. You know, they, they want to actually hold something while they study, not just look at a screen or not just listen, right? So if you're, if you're that kind of learner, we also have printed material uh, that we're working on. Again, it should be coming on pretty soon where you can be able to order uh, the printed material and be able to study. You have all these questions in print format where you can study. But I think even what sets us apart even more the number one thing that sets us apart from all of our competitors is post-exam health. Because guys, you have started on a journey. 
Um, hopefully, this is something you like. Hopefully, you can make it a career the same way I've made a career. Uh, I was a pharmacist in my past life, and trust me, I love what I do. I can see myself doing this for the next 10, 20, 30 years of my life. I love it, right? So we are not just here to prepare you for exam. This is the first step, okay? This is the first step to just help you pass your exam. But after that, you're going to need help along the way. You're going to need help with applying for your license or some of you who want to get a, a life and health insurance job, you no know, insurance agent job. You're going to need help with the job search so we could help you with that. Or you even need help creating your own insurance business. As I told you, the people who make the most money in the, in the insurance industry, when I mean most money, hundreds of thousands, thousands of dollars every year or millions of people who own their own business. So if you need help of setting up your own business for very little money, how to go about doing it, all of that, we can help you with it. All right. So we are not just here to help you prepare for your exam, but we are here to guide you, to mentor you as you're about to take this journey into an exciting career. And I hope just like me, you're going to find the insurance industry rewarding. I hope this will not just be rewarding emotionally, but also financially. I don't know how much you're earning, but I can tell you right now that a lot of people, when I started out, they were laughing at me. Come on, you're a pharmacist. You can't be an insurance agent. No, that is beneath you. That is, you know, and a lot of people have so, so much crap to say. But I can tell you right now that I earn more money than any pharmacist out there as an insurance agent. I won't call myself an insurance agent because I just don't do insurance. I'm a financial professional. So hopefully, if you take it true and you don't let the naysayers and the doubters discourage you, you can be able to look back years from now, just like me, and say this was one of the best decisions I ever made. This was the best financial decision of your life. You can be able to do that. So I'd like to say thank you very much for listening. I hope you learned something. Let me know in the comment section. Um, if you're listening to this on the podcast, share subscribe if you're listening to this on youtube like comment subscribe share with people you know if you're in a insurance marketing group like maybe some of you are in um prime america some of you are with php some of you are with world financial group or um american income like whatever right share with people in your group right share this video and if they like what to see, trust me, if you if you like what you see, you're going to love the actual course even more because this is just an appetizer. What you're going to get from the course is even a thousand percent more than this. So I wish you guys the best in your exam, even if you don't uh, sign up for a course, that is okay. I hope this was able to help you. And until next time, 
please be safe out there. And until uh, I see you, hopefully some of you, I can get comments in a uh, comment session. No, you can come back later on. After you pass the exam, I would like to hear from you. So you have my email in the description, menzopass at menzopass.com or leave, uh, leave comment in the description. Let me know whether uh, this was able to help you or not um, pass your exam. All right, guys, thank you very much for listening and I'll see you guys at the top.